Hi, and welcome to Bend, the podcast. This is Lillian. And this is Deb. Thank you for joining us for today's episode and for being part of the larger conversation. We hope that today's guest challenges your ideas of what it means to be well. Part of what wellness means to us is disrupting our own privilege. And a piece of that is acknowledging the territories where we record our podcast. We're situated on the unceded and traditional territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Bend the Podcast. We're happy you're here with us today. Our guest today is Aisha Tour. She is a community advocate. She has lived rurally most of her adult life, and most of her life, not just adult life, and she was a child immigrant to Canada. Um, today, she's going to share some of her lived experience with us. We're hoping to, um, yeah, to have a, a really um, open conversation. I think, um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Lillian, for having me here. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm trying to stay, well, it's it's howling outside today, so today that's all been about staying warm. I know, I know. That's this time of year, right? So many transitions and challenges in terms of weather. Um, and I live in an old house, so I feel like it needs to warm up. Like it mm-hmm. takes like a few weeks in the, at this time of year for the house to actually physically warm up. Absolutely. And it's been challenged the past, certainly the past 24 hours, hasn't it? <laughs> For sure. Hopefully when people are listening to this, we'll all have been acclimatized to cooler weather. That's right. Or maybe it's a beautiful sunny day, who knows, but right. it's, yeah, remarkable, the transition to cooler weather, mm-hmm. houses and bodies, all that stuff. Um, we're really happy you're here today and we're going to ask you to kind of introduce yourself. I think it's worth noting that you know, you're, you're a really interesting woman and have lots to share. And we'd initially reached out to you to talk about something entirely different. And you came back to us and said, no, there's something, there are other things I'd like to talk about if, if you're open and willing. And here we are. Well, thank, as I said before, <laughs> thanks. And you did, you reached out um, to have me talk more about my professional work. And I did say I'd rather talk about this lived experience I have as a racialized woman in a small community, because it was my experience as a child, and it's my experience as an adult woman. And I think that in the current climate, the current social political climate, we are where we all are all wrestling with and trying to come to some sort of peace with the the racial unrest in our communities. So maybe it's a really uh, timely topic for us to be chatting about right now. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. We had a guest recently who was talking, we were talking about a number of things and the idea of privilege came up and comfort and, you know, comfort is a privileged place, right? And, mm-hmm. and for folks such as us who are intersectionally privileged, um, yeah, I think we need to have, continue to have these conversations. And, and I was reminding Lillian as we were, you know, getting ready for this, preparing for our chat with you that, the work of anti-racism is about our, um, you know, really doing our own work and, and trying to move ourselves, disrupt ourselves out of that comfort mm-hmm. place and not for folks such as you to teach us, right? So as we navigate this conversation, I want to be really aware of that, that I, you know, embed 
the story, your story in, in, in what you're sharing today and, and not simply that it's your job to teach us what it's like to be a racialized woman. I really appreciate that, Deb and, and Lillian, that you would note that. I also consider myself privileged in, in many ways. I do think, however, that as racialized people in small communities, um, we sometimes you know, try and blend into the shadows or we sometimes try to whitewash our lives, not to throw too much jargon around. And it's that story that needs to be told. Mm -hmm. And that needs to come from someone who's experienced it. It can't come from someone who hasn't. Absolutely. And as you were saying, you know, before we hit record, you were talking about how much harder it is to do any kind of anti-racism work in a bubble, right? If you're, if you're not working alongside of, of friends or mentors or colleagues or, you know, um, maybe professionals in your life, in your life, it, it's much harder to, to do that work and maybe understand the perspective or even begin to understand the perspective that somebody has. And I think sometimes that can end up being the conundrum that people sit in because absolutely it is not the job of racialized people to help people who are um, in the, of the dominant culture, which happens, I mean, dominant skin color, I suppose, which happens to be white in this country, to learn um, for us to teach you. That's all your work to do. We, we discussed mm -hmm. that in the opening comments when we were mm -hmm. chatting away. However, I think that if you don't know anyone whose story that you can hear or you don't connect on that level, even with the people that you know who are racialized, makes that work even harder to do. Mm -hmm. I agree, yeah. Um, so you've lived rurally most of your life. Tell us about that. Where, where did you grow up? <laughs> so I can jump right into it. When I was six, we immigrated from um, one of the largest cities in the world, which is Karachi, Pakistan, which has a population, I think now of about 17 million people. Hmm. And that's where I spent my, my um, formative years, I suppose, from zero to six. And then we came to Cambridge, Ontario. Hmm. At the time, it wasn't even called Cambridge, Ontario. It was Hesper, Galt, or Preston. Uh, we moved to Galt. I think the population was, I'm going to say it was well under 10,000 people because I seemed to think I, I knew everyone. And I also seemed to think that for this like vague memory that we made quite a splash when we showed up in town, hmm. that people were not, we were the first definitely the first children of color to live in that town hmm. they were there was i think one family who was um of african or jamaican descent but we were definitely the first children of color to live in that town and we were really noticed mm -hmm. when we were there mm -hmm. and sometimes in very good ways and sometimes in ways that were not so um not so helpful for us as we grew up mm -hmm. And did you, how many siblings did you have? So I have three siblings. They're all younger than I am. So I came definitely leader of the pack. Mm -hmm. Definitely the one that paved some of the roads that the four of us traveled on. Yeah. And, and what are some of those early memories of Cambridge? First of all, can you just situate that for folks who might not be from Ontario? And even I'm from Ontario, but I'm not even sure. That's where in Southern Ontario is that? So west of Toronto, right near Kitchener-Waterloo, butts right up to Kitchener-Waterloo. So Kitchener-Cambridge-Guelph, it's a little triangle yeah. down on um, Highway 4, hi, the 401 and Highway 24 yeah. are, would be the big intersection there. Thank you. That helps situate yeah. it. Um, what are some of those early memories from, from, that must have been a huge change for you. What time it, of year it, did you come, first of okay. all? 
one of the things I try and I tell people, which I think is amazing when we think of how we try and settle people in the current context and, you know, the supports that we try and build for families who are immigrating, whether they're, we immigrated for economic reasons, we were not refugees. My father was recruited by a company in Cambridge to come and work. Mm. He was offered a five-year contract and he was recruited in Paxton because of some expertise that he had and he was then transplanted here. So he was here for about 18 months before we arrived. Um, we arrived on a Thursday and people, and I always say to people, I came on Thursday and I went to school on Monday. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it was like, here you are to not go to school because that's where children go. And I had already been in school for half a year in in Pakistan, so school was not, um, school was probably one of the most comforting things that was offered to me. In in uh, our current situation with Corona, people have been saying over and over again, kids need to go back to school. They feel safe there. They like the routine. And certainly that's how I felt. And I was quite happy to go to school. Yeah. I didn't speak any English, but I was still quite happy to go to school. Oh, so you yeah. didn't speak any English. You, you come to, come on Thursday, you go to school Monday. What, wow, that's, that must have been a lot. Yeah, I, I, now I don't, I don't actually think of the going to school as a particularly negative experience. And I don't mm -hmm. think that I felt particularly afraid to go to school again. We weren't refugees, we were economic migrants. We were happy to be reunited as a family for, to be, I was thrilled to be reunited with my dad who I hadn't seen in a while, well, mm -hmm. almost two years. And I think I was excited to be here because my mom certainly, built up that excitement of coming to Canada and it being a, a great adventure or just, you know, a great, we were going to be back with my dad. It was a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And things like, you know, supports in school, I mean, in, in a lot of places, it's hard to even find ESL or second language stuff or supports, or did they just throw you in and kids learn or in amazing I'm, way? I'm pretty sure there wasn't any of that in 1970. Yeah. I'm no, pretty no. sure that there was nothing in, in the school, and I don't remember anything mm -hmm. like that. I remember, I distinctly remember being different, I distinctly mm -hmm. remember um, both positive and negative experiences of difference as a child. Mm -hmm. um, I can remember one of my first memories of school is it was the end of Ramadan. And uh, for people who don't know, Ramadan is in the month of fasting for, um, for Muslims. And then at, on the, the day after the end of the month of Ramadan, you have what's called Eid, which in mm. Arabic translates into festival. And I remember my mother brought henna along with her from, mm. Pakistan and she did my hands because that's a big thing to get your hands mm -hmm. done and I went to school um, it might have happened on the weekend because when I went back to school one of my classmates was absolutely I, I don't want to use the word horrified but she was just so surprised and she was so worried for me this is what I remember is her like taking me over by my hand to the um, the easel where the the markers were and asking me if I'd hit written on my hands and mm -hmm. sort of letting me know that I was going to be in a lot of trouble if the teacher had found mm -hmm. out that I did my magic markers, her magic markers on my hands. So that was like, I think that was my first memory of understanding that I was different. Mm -hmm. That this was not something that kids in Canada knew about or did. I just assumed it was. Mm -hmm. As when much as you would have assumed nobody would ever do anything like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you remember your friends being very curious? No, I, I, I have to say there was very little curiosity. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a case of tell me about that, even though I don't know if 
I would have had the language capacity to do that. It was very much a, we don't do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is not the behavior that's acceptable. And she wasn't, but I could tell she was worried about me. I don't remember my grade one teacher being particularly someone you had to worry about, but she was mm -hmm. worried about me. Mm -hmm. And and how did life evolve in Cambridge for your family? You know, your mom and your siblings, your dad. Your dad had been there, uh, however different when he's there with his family, I'm sure. And how did how did life evolve there? I think what happens to, and I'm going to generalize a little bit here from my own experience, is I think that when you are that small of a number, we're there's four of us. There weren't a lot of other children who were Pakistani or Muslim. There were other immigrant. Um, immigrant group but there were larger amounts and so people have communities we were a very small tiny little community we're amongst ourselves my family and then two um single men that were friends with my father actually one was not single he had family in pakistan they um united a few years later and that was it that was our our community our sort of community that we could really connect with and then aside from that, you have to sort of navigate how you're going to fit into a larger community that doesn't reflect you. Mm -hmm. And we, we had, well, I'm not going to say we are just talking about my experience and not my experience, not the, my siblings experience, even though some of it's similar, some of it's different. Um, you know, you had to learn how to fit in, um, in a way that you weren't constantly being questioned for who you are. Mm. You weren't constantly being challenged um, for what you ate or how you dressed or um, certain practices that you may or may you may have and it's really important for kids especially to feel that they're reflected in their larger community and when you don't you be you sort of are you you really do sit like a have your feet on two sides of a crack is kind of how I describe it and there's the one side we're trying to fit into one community and then the other side you're battling to fit in to um, a different one. In my case, there was always a bit of conflict between, you know, fitting in with all of my um, people who were my age, my, you know, my classmates, my friends, all of whom were white, and then mm -hmm. still living in a very Pakistani Muslim household when I was out, when I was not either playing with friends or um, not at school. Mm -hmm. And how much, how much of that caused conflict between with your parents uh, and as as a kid or was that because I hear that from sometimes from some of my friends who were immigrants and they they said their you know their parents there's maybe pressure from their parents or larger family if they had extended family to to you know be a certain way and then school felt school and social stuff was different and navigating that. How was that for you? I think the context of the time is really important. This is the early seventies mm. and for people who were around in the early seventies, mm. that's the Trudeau era, the original mm. Trudeau era and the big push in the early seventies. And I consider myself one of Trudeau's children is multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a big push to, um, there's a big push at the early, I, the way I sort of reflect on multiculturalism is in the early years of the 70s, the push was on um, us to all become integrated, right? It wasn't as much on, and assimilate, like you could be proud of your heritage, but you needed to assimilate as much as you could. And then, you know, once a year or twice a year, you'd get to go to a multicultural festival or something like that, and you could show off who you were. And that's what it felt like. It wasn't as if though, these were things that were taught in classrooms or 
in a classroom that was something, a point of pride or something to be explored, it wasn't explored. I was expected to fit in to my classroom. I was expected to, uh, for lack of a better word, be as white as I could. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that sounds really harsh. I have lots of, I have lots of memories of really kind teachers and especially in the early years and people who were, I think, trying really hard to help us as a family, um, support us as a family as we learned to navigate life in Canada. I do have lots of really negative experiences as a young child in school and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, like being, being visibly pointed out as being different or being shamed for being different or, mm -hmm you know, not being encouraged because I was different. Like she wanted someone to stand up and be able to say what the provinces were from east to west or west to east, I can't remember. And I was the only person in the classroom that knew them. Mm -hmm. So I put my hand up and she let me stand up and, I, and the territories and I knew them. And when I was done, it wasn't like way to go. It wasn't like good job, which is what you would think most teachers. It was, she turned to the classroom and said, that the rest of the class should be ashamed of themselves because I knew this and I wasn't a real Canadian. Hmm. So that's sort of a context of what it could have been like in the early 70s. I don't know if it was like that for a lot of kids, but I think that now that we're sort of exploring the ideas of systemic racism, that's where things like systemic racism come from. Yeah. yeah. Right, because then we're embedding this idea that I'm not Canadian because uh, maybe I have an accent, which I, I don't think I did. I'm, I'm not sure as a child if I had an accent during our recordings, but definitely because of the color of my skin and definitely because of where I was born. I'm not a Canadian. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a that's a lot for a school-aged kid to to carry, right? You have this moment well, where really Yeah. Yeah, that it sits with me that she took the time to point out my difference and not in a positive kind of way. So then that, you know, if you fast forward that to my high school years, mm -hmm. grade 10 or 11 in geography or history, one of those classes must have been history. We were doing a cultural demographic. So you took on a cultural demographic and did a project on immigration and migration in that in that cultural demographic within Canada and the roots there. And, and I didn't want to do, I remember saying to my history teacher that, well, I would take on Ukrainian migration. I can remember distinctly saying that because I also felt that Ukrainian people had been in Canada long enough that it was a culture that was very accepted in Canada. And I remember him saying, well, why would you that, do that? You should talk about your own heritage. And I remember feeling, well, like, I can't do that. If I do that, people will know I'm from Pakistan and then I'll be different. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And those end up being the, some of the thought processes I think people go through when they're new in a country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the context of school where, um, in the context of the time period as well, but I, I don't know that it's, there are places where it's not all that different now, but when people aren't, aren't around difference, as you said at the beginning, it's hard to do, you know, the work of anti-racism, which we didn't even have a label for in the 70s, probably. Mm -hmm. um, if we did, it wasn't called that. It's hard to do that work if, if you're, you're rarely around people that are different from you. And I don't mean different in a derogatory way. I mean, different than, than we white folks, right? Diverse, diverse and rich. And, and so people are, for, for lots of reasons, that I can't cite right now, but they're fearful of that, whether that's, um, and I think that fear comes out in, in lots of ways, right? In the systemic 
um, racism that exists today. We see that, I mean, we're in the context of, we're recording this just before the US election. It's, yeah, there's, there's lots happening right here, right now that, that tell us things, I don't think things are, some things are different and some things aren't, hey? Yeah, I, I think that as a child who grows up in a small, um, in a small town, and if you're visibly different as I was or different in, in any other sort of intersectionality, but we're going to talk about race today, so we'll keep it there, that if you grow up like, and you don't see yourself reflected back in the adult community, and especially in the adult professional community, the easiest thing that you can do is hide. You can hide your ethnicity, you can hide your color, you can hide your cultural background because you don't see success in your color reflected back to you. So growing up in a small town, I did not experience teachers of color. Mm -hmm. I did not experience doctors of color. I did not experience um, social workers of color. I did not experience um, police officers or dentists or any of uh, any of the um, professions that you may aspire to have been did not exist for me as a child. So there was there was no reflection in that adult community. So the easiest way to become successful was to not be of a color. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you can disguise yourself or whitewash yourself quite easily as a child because you can learn what things end up getting you friends and what things end up ostracizing you. And now if you wanted to, in a large city, if you wanted only to hang out with people with color, you could actually do that. Mm -hmm. But I was not in that position to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very different in a there's rural no context. Yeah, just... there's no critical mass, right? Yeah. So then I, I'm, you know, I grew up in Cambridge, I graduate, I think I'm one of three women of color in my graduating class in my relatively large high school, it wasn't a small high school. Um, and because at this time, Cambridge has become a larger city, it's now at about 120,000 people. So now it's a big city, right? Mm -hmm. And then you move over, then I, I come to Ottawa to go to Carleton, which I, uh, did choose because I felt it was a very progressive university. I felt that it was a, um, a relatively multicultural university. It was a mix of diversity on that campus that I wasn't seeing on some of the other campuses of schools that I was uh, exploring. And then, you know, of course, Ottawa felt like it should be diverse because of because it's a government town, because there's embassies, and, and it was. It, it was um, more diverse than what I was used to. But after um, graduating from school and getting married, we decide that we were going to move to Carleton Place. And then I, I spend a lot of time reflecting on, wow, I'm back to where I was as a child, where I'm, not I'm noted in town because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. And I'm a bit of a buzz again. Mm -hmm. I can distinctly remember that feeling of, oh, people are noticing me, and there's been talk in this small town that there's a woman of color living down on John Street. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And then at that stage in your life, did you still feel that same need to hide those differences? That you Probably even hide? more, Lillian, because at this point I have children. I have one child and, um, and I go on to have um, two more and I'm in a um, mixed race marriage as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm sort of 
trying to fit in in both those spaces. Mm -hmm. I had a really lovely landlady when we first rented a house and in Carlton Place, and she ended up being very supportive and a really nice friend to me. But when I first met her, she said to, I came to Carlton Place because one of my friends was living here and we were going to end up being neighbors. But she said to my friend after I left and saw the house, she said, oh, where did she get her little girl from? Mm -hmm. My little girl would have had like coloring like yours, Lillian, which is, you know, sort of paler skin and blonde hair. Mm -hmm. So this woman at no point could connect that I gave birth to somebody like that. Mm. That looked that way, that didn't look, that didn't have dark skin and dark hair. Mm -hmm. and, and I realized, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to have to try and fit in here too. And even though now we're like looking at 1991 or I think it was 1993 that we moved here, um, things haven't, aren't really that much different here. And if I want to fit in, then I'm going to have to fit in in a way that makes me acceptable. And again, not be too different. Mm -hmm. How exhausting it must be to have to think about that and to have to, like you said, hide certain parts of yourself or hide certain parts of your identity, right? Even if day to day, you don't think that it's an exhausting thing mm -hmm. to experience. I think over time, what a toll that would take on your mental well being. Right? And I really appreciate you saying that because I feel like you don't do it on purpose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so you do it because if you're the one and only, it's hard to, um, it's hard to just be the one and only we're pack animals we we like groups mm -hmm. we feel supported mm -hmm. in groups we mm -hmm. we like our social structures and you want to fit into those and um when you have kids you just really especially when you have children and you want your children to fit in as well and to be accepted by their peers that's really important it's you know i don't want did not want my children going to um, all white schools and it, the first thing that people notice is their skin color and that ends up being what defines them Mm-hmm. But it did it did really define our family a lot. And I think I um well I know that so much of it was unconscious for me, they didn't even realize I was doing it until um recently. And I think it's the discussion of last year on systemic racism that have really brought a lot of this forward to me. I think I was always very conscious of it. I just think I hadn't really realized how much it affected me. I internalized and how much of it I felt like, um, you know, becomes your protective armor. Right. Whitewashing right. yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you were, you were doing a lot of this in your eyes to protect your children, mm -hmm. right? From having to go through certain things and well, yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, eventually uncovering those things that you've pushed down unconsciously um, yeah, yeah, it's a lot. And consciously, right? Because once you start sort of trying to explore things like this with your friends, these are conversations that can become uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's very yeah. disruptive in other people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. If you've been my friend for the last 27 years that I've lived in, in this community, um, I, I often try to explain to people that, you know, I have worked consciously and unconsciously just to become part of the fabric of the society here. When I was the only person I could see in town who was a visible minority, it had an impact on me that said, well, okay, people may want to be, I have a friend um, who once said to me, a long-term friend here in Carlton Place that said it was actually my difference that attracted me to her. 
that attracted her to me, mm. that she wanted to be friends with me because I was different, which really the uncomfortable conversation in that kind of thing is, wow, isn't that a real high point of privilege for you where you think that I'm now another token that you can have? Mm. Oh, I'm the one who befriended the girl who's a person of color when she moved to town? Mm. Like when you're, when you're willing to say it was the color of my skin, then that's like, you know, it's, it's, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> that confuses me so much because then it's not about me at all. It's just about you wanting to have a, you know, a friend of a different color because that expands your worldliness, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like I'm just, a, I'm a token in your life. You know, it doesn't, you don't need to get me. You don't need to understand my life. You don't need to understand my lived experience because just by claiming me as your friend, um, you better yourself. I, I don't know if that's the right way to put it. Mm-hmm. You're still friends. Are you guys still oh, friends? We're still yeah. great friends. And so we're, never, we're still great friends, but we've never had that uncomfortable conversation. When she said this to me recently in the last, you know, two years, I was like, I, I don't, I don't even know how to process this because now two years later, somebody said this to me, I'm ready to challenge you. Yeah. The last, there's been a big shift in the last couple of years in the way I see myself placed in this community and also the way I see myself placed in the larger context of an anti-racism movement. But that's a really uncomfortable conversation to have with someone Absolutely. when you know they value me as a friend, but they don't realize that that sort of choice of language that says, I chose you to be my friend because you're colored is actually quite racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then again, that's you trying to teach her, I assume it's a her, that, that yeah. person, yeah. how, what you need, right? And that's, that, there's a cost to that. There's, there's a huge cost to that. And so not just a cost for me, it's also then um, hopefully prompts the person on the other end of it to do their work, the work that they need to do. Mm-hmm. I think I have done a, a really great job of blending in, of trying to find jobs here, of you know, my kids went to school in this community, they have friends in this community, they volunteered in this community, so they've been a part of this community, and just, you know, two of my children don't um, look like racialized people, and one of them really does, Mm. so then we deal with that as a family, yes and no, like we do and we don't, right, we have lots of conversations, and um, some of them are good, and some of them are are not great, because we Mm. even have differences amongst the five of us on how this kind of thing needs to be navigated, but where I was going is I, I, and I think I've done a job so well that on my part of blending in and not having my difference recognize that uh, most of my friends think it's a compliment or most people I know think it's a compliment when the context of race comes up that they are able to say something to me like, well, I've never even noticed your color. Mm-hmm. And that's become a real point of conversation, right? In, um, as we deal with the anti-racism movement, well, in not noticing my color, what you do is tell me that I can't be true to my own identity, mm-hmm. that I have to fit an identity that suits you. Mm-hmm. And I suspect I, when, you, when, you, when you say that, my response or my reaction is there's a certain invisibility that, right. you know, that if they're not seeing you for who you are, they're missing, yeah, there's, is, is that accurate for me to, that description is there an uh, I don't want to sort of get into the whole white privilege thing but if we can have a moment I think that if you are a well-educated 
um, relatively liberal, maybe well-traveled white person in this community, the fact that you can say, I don't see your color is a way of saying I'm not a racist. Mm. How could I be a racist? You're my friend. I've mm -hmm. never noticed you're any mm -hmm. different than me. Mm -hmm. But in the context of systemic racism and an anti-racism movement that wants to break down racist structures in saying that, are you not actually saying the opposite? Because mm -hmm. you want them to see your color. You want them to see what that represents for right. you and what that means yeah. for you, right? Yeah, that that is part of who I am. It's not yeah. just, it's a cellular part of who I am. Mm -hmm. It's not something you know, that I um, took on as something that I want to be part of my identity. You know, for example, I could choose an identity that says, um, I'm a volunteer. That's a really important part of my identity. Well, that's something I take on. That is not something that's um, embedded in my DNA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have mentioned that your perspective and how you fit in with, I think you said, the fabric of, of our communities has changed over the last couple of years. What, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, well, I think there is more diversity in this community mm -hmm. now. We are yeah. seeing more people of color. I think that you know we can't con consider ourselves a diverse community unless um, two things happen. One, they stay because people mm -hmm. come into small towns and then they say, "Wait, hang on, there's nobody like me here. I'll just go find someone who is like me." Mm -hmm. That's so much easier than not being me. So I think that's a really important part in the context of the uh, current conversation is that people of color and people of difference are really being encouraged to be those people, mm -hmm. to to be proud of their, to be proud of their traditions or their language. Um, and um, you asked me what two things, right? I said two things. And the other thing is we are starting to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the deepening of the conversation that I think is really important. Because I also think it's, you know, it's one thing to acknowledge that people are different. It's one thing to acknowledge that they have different cultural traditions and to be supportive of them. But that can also very quickly end up being a bit of, um, it can end up being very surface. Like, I, I'll acknowledge your culture if you're sharing your food with me, but I don't really want to hear about your trauma around it. Mm -hmm. So the desire, to, um, the, the desire to embellish one's life through somebody else's um, difference or their exoticism or however, whatever term you want to use, but not to really be able to understand their story or their, or their context right now. Mm -hmm. And the context right now, I, I, I mean, easy for me to say it's shifting or it's changing or we're talking about race more. Um, certainly, maybe I am thinking about my place in, in that place of comfort I talked about. And we talked earlier about um, just about the context of right now and what's happening in the world and what's been happening in the States. And um, how, how have the last, what, six, seven months, how have these conversations shifted for you internally, externally, have they? Well, internally, I've had a huge shift. Mm. Internally, I've had a massive shift and it's, I, um, I'm pretty open with the fact that I've been really, I have been forever changed by the death of George Floyd. Mm. It has um, made me care for my community, like my larger community of people of color, far more than I ever did. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, but I would say, honestly, the, the deeper context of having conversations like this is still not happening. It's still not happening. I, um, I know that there was a protest uh, or a support um, rally for Denise in Almont, the woman that was written about in the Mill Street, in the mm-hmm. Millstone. And I don't know Denise and I don't really know her story. I just know that when I questioned um, some friends on how they could ever think this was an odd occurrence in Lanark County or Mississippi Mills or Almont, I was very quickly rebuffed and given the cold shoulder. These are, this was all actually all happened on social media, so it doesn't matter. These are not people that I, I feel that all invested in, but that the conversation, when I rebuffed a, a, you know, a, um, a conversation that was happening, I was completely ignored. Hmm. And in my, in my response to somebody saying, it, this is terrible and how could this ever happen in Almont, I said, I have lived here for 27 years and I can tell you unequivocally, I have not had one year in this county where I haven't had a racial slur thrown at me or garbage thrown at me or threats thrown at me. Mm-hmm. And that, that when people say, oh, this is a shock, I'm, I'm shocked that you think it's a shock. I'm shocked that you think that this is a one-off. Mm-hmm. This is not. This is not a one-off here. This is something that is embedded in our in our society in our social structure, and it is something that we need to start having very very difficult conversations with, about and around. Um, of my children, my one child who has darker colored skin, he is called the N-word at school. This is something we had to deal with at school, and he's young. He's, he's 25, so this is not a lot, all that long ago, right? And um, all of my children have had their parentage questions, like, that's your mom? Mm. That's your dad? These are, and some people might say, oh, that's just some child who doesn't know. But sure, but their child receiving that comment then says, well, what's wrong with my family? That someone would ask if that's my mom or that's my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why do I have to answer that question? I don't, you don't have to answer that question. So as a child, you're sort of like, I, I don't really understand why I have to answer this question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you navigate that when it's happening with your children? How, how do you, how, that must be really difficult. Yeah, I would say that my children are, are um, very, proud of their heritage they mm-hmm. they um accept the, they are proud of it they they don't have a problem telling people that they're half pakistani half dutch or you know half white half colored um and we talked about it a lot in our house about how it made and we talk actually i'd say we're talking about it even a lot more now mm-hmm. and we all sit in different places of it because we all are different colors you know that we all sort of recognize where we sit um you know on our intersectionality with color and privilege and and how we navigate the world Mm -hmm. as yeah as you say yeah when when your kids all um they they look very different their experience of being adults being children has probably yes i'm sure it's been different with each of them for sure Mm -hmm. i think that uh, that generation sort of I don't know if it's better or worse, Deb, given some of the things I've said, but really does accept people just as they see them. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think, is that better? Are we, are we ignoring the conversation around systemic racism when what we laud and applaud is the not seeing of difference? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we say, good for you guys for never noticing 
or, or maybe they do notice the difference, but they're just more accepting of those differences. Mm -hmm. That they're not asking people to be the same when they're different. That they just it's it's now being different is is um, is the norm. I, I'm not sure, but I don't think I when I talk about systemic racism or when I think about systemic racism or have conversations with my friends. One thing I try and remind people is it's not about whether you are a racist as an individual. Like I what it's about is the structures and the systems that keep people of color oppressed or and other people keep us oppressed and marginalized that don't offer us the opportunities or the um or yeah opportunities to have the kinds of lives that we want because of the systems it's not if i want to talk about systemic racism i am not accusing you of being a racist you are also just a a cog in a racist system and that is the that's the conversation i want to have mm-hmm mm-hmm where where do we start for people listening to this going wow this is a lot what what can i do no. right now like what you know there may be this big mouth lady on the radio <laughs> i think people people perhaps living rurally listening to this maybe people living in the city listening to this you know it happens in a city as well but certainly i i completely appreciate that the rural context is different um where can we start where where can those conversations start I know, and I had this a conversation very similar to this with um, a really close friend of mine, and and all I can talk about is my experience, right? And she said, "How could we make it easier? How could we make things different for you? What would make things different?" And I said, "Wouldn't it be really interesting, or you know, if the six or seven of us that hang out together all the time and have lunch and share birthdays and stuff?" I said, "I don't think any of you really know my story." Mm. I said, you, you know, we all met in our 30s or our 20s, and you've only seen me as this Canadian girl. So you really don't know my story. You don't know that I, I battle racism all the time, that people have, have little to no problem throwing a, a racist, you know, taunt at a person without even realizing that they're doing it. Mm -hmm. and, and she said, you're right. I don't, none of us really know. So is it, in doing your own work, and I don't really want to get into other people having to do their own anti-racism work, but um, isn't listening to the stories of people of color and understanding their experience really not the first step? Mm. We talked we talked ahead of time of how you can't do the work, you can't do it in a vacuum, that it's hard to sort of place your um, work or your desire to be anti-racist just out in the ether and having no context for it mm -hmm. but maybe it's not for some people it's i mean i i think i i really land in the place where i say it can't all be theoretical it has to be um both active and experiential as well absolutely absolutely and i think we're there's a time right now just with with the death of george floyd and, and other folks there's just been um it's been some great art highlighted or great um great works great books right now that people like us can read to kind of better understand um our the work that we need to do again that kind of a book happens in a bubble right it's it's my interacting with this thing listening to it reading it and if i don't have the con the larger context in which to to do that work then it just becomes an idea 
Right. And, and, and we definitely need those ideas. I, personally, I'm having to do the exact same work. I feel that I've become so part of the mainstream white culture because I actually don't have any Pakistani friends mm. other than my childhood friends. And because I've, I've lived in this community and I've made choices that I you know, really wanted my kids to be part of this community. I didn't want to live here and run to the, and run to the city every weekend. Mm because my kids were, because we we're going to have a life here. We made that choice, right? Um, but I'm, I'm on the same journey as you, Deb, really trying to, and, and Lillian, like really trying to understand my own context. Mm -hmm. I've chosen that for a year. I'm only going to read racialized writers. Mm -hmm. I'm a big reader. And mm -hmm. I just said, you know, both the fiction and the nonfiction give you insights into how people's lives are shaped when they are the minority or when they're living in, a, you know, when they are living a racialized life in a white majority mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. I encourage everyone to do that. That's a great idea. I know a friend talked to me about that recently. That that's the commitment she's made to doing the work she needs to do that as one step. And I thought that's such a, that was so inspiring mm -hmm. for me and, and making a concerted effort to seek out art that, you know, if you're an art consumer, somebody likes to, you know, even right now we're doing a lot of stuff online, but, or music or, just profile um, other voices, right? Or other folks who are, are doing amazing things and, and see what happens, you know? Um, I think there are a lot of ways to, to... And I think that, you know, you have to sort of make, ensure that you don't like, you know, like sort of start delving into cultural appropriation when you're mm -hmm. doing those things that you mm -hmm. really recognize where this music lands and who it really it means something to and it doesn't mean mm -hmm. that it can't be it can't mean anything to you or it can't be enjoyed by you but you can delve into cultural you can dive into cultural appropriation very quickly mm -hmm. absolutely i think the larger piece of that for me at least is you know in in trying to diversify maybe who i'm listening to on podcasts or in uh, on in music or who i'm reading makes me look at who I'm reading, like what I'm surrounding right. myself with, right? right. And so that, right. and, and what, what else, what else is out there? There's a whole world out there and how, so it highlights where, you know, where highlights perhaps that I'm only reading, you know, I didn't even realize it. Maybe I'm only reading white authors. I didn't know that, or I didn't know that most of the the people that I, I'm listening to are, there's just no diversity in the mm -hmm. music I listen to, you know? It, and so it, it, it kind of is a good time to reflect just in terms of what, you know, where, what that means, what that says about where I'm at right now and what I need to learn. And it's also very much reflective of, as we said, the, the systems and the structures that, um, marginalized, marginalized voices that are different, marginalized those diverse voices. So the fact that you don't have access to it or you don't realize mm -hmm. that you're not, you come to a realization that you're not listening to or reading diversity, it's only because, well, it's partly because it's just not available to you, that you actually have to make extra effort to go get it. You don't have to make a lot of extra effort to go get food that's diverse. Mm -hmm. we're, we're definitely a a culture that will consume other cultures through their food very mm -hmm. easily. There's lots of theories. And if you've heard of the theory of eating the other, but you know, those mm -hmm. kinds of um, social theories that say we're very good at expanding our, our um, exceptionalities through eating other people's food, but then we don't want to get much beyond that because anything beyond that then really becomes work. So if you read a memoir or if you read, um, 
uh, like literary nonfiction or on on the lives of people who are marginalized, then that's a lot more work. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more work than picking up your local, you know, Indian food or whatever your fancy happens to be that week, right? It's a lot more work to to digest those stories, a lot harder than digesting the food. Mm-hmm. And significant, you know, I think important as well. Um, yeah, I, I like that piece about food. And I, I know I've heard that theory before and you're, you're sparking something in me that I need to delve into a little bit more. That's, that's a really good point, especially, I mean, in, in rural areas where it's, you know, I, we can't just access lots of different international cuisines if we wanted to, right? And so um, often- But we can make them, right? We, we, we actually can because we can get most of the things that we need to make stuff now. It, the harder work is then really understanding the culture that that food sits in and, mm-hmm. um, and, and the other stories that go with it that aren't just about the food. Mm-hmm. Well, we could have a whole podcast a talking whole about- yeah, well, I know. <laughs> yeah, and that would be a really good talk. Yeah, you know, ethnic food with a side side of you know anti-racism. I'm not yeah. <laughs> positive, it. right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, it, Aisha, what is is now the right time to ask you what wellness means to you in the context of? I mean, I feel like we're just starting this conversation, and it's it's um there's a lot to dig into here, and I think that. I, I hope we've given people snippets of things to think about and, you know, questions maybe. For sure. Yeah. yeah. What does wellness mean to you? And you asked me this many weeks ago and I've been sitting and sitting on it. Well, not sitting on it. I've been reflecting on it a lot because in the context of what I've been discussing, which is feeling marginalized and oppressed because of the color of my skin and, you know, as I age, pardon my age, we'll leave that part out. Um, but like, you know, when we're talking about color, skin color and, and culture and fitting in in a small, in a small community specifically, mm-hmm. I think that the lack of ability for the, the majority of folks to really recognize and see the stories that people like me have to offer really does disrupt our wellness. Because as Lillian pointed out earlier in the conversation, it asks me to hide part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And then shaves away at my identity until it's shaped to suit the community Mm. right and how can a person really be fully well if they can't be fully themselves if they're not fully realized if they're not fully you know um, living their life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no kidding and and I think that that's something that many people might be might be hearing and not having heard but maybe hearing this for the first time you know for folks who haven't who don't maybe have these conversations or understand what it's like to walk in your shoes not that we can ever truly understand but wow that's how can you be truly well when you can't be who you are right and an example i use of that is you know the lots of conversations we've had about um clothing about costuming and how traditional dress is not costumes, right? And I've had the conversations with people where they've said, well, then how come you get to wear Western dress? Are you not putting on a costume every day? And I, and I want to say, well, yes, maybe. Maybe I actually am. Maybe I am costuming every day. But in my case, it's, um, it's actually survival. Mm. 
mm-hmm. especially in you know context of a, a small town I you know in larger cities um, women and men wear traditional clothing but there's a lot of people doing it or there's a there's not a lot but there's um, a, a, you know a significant mass of people doing it so it's not considered strange it's not considered something to be looked at but in the context of a, a rural or a small community it's actually just survival mm-hmm. when we first arrived in Canada my mother tells a story of uh, hopping, I happen to her often so you have to understand my mother is like poster gorgeous right so mm-hmm. you know, like a thick long black braid down to her waistline and you know young she was I think only 30 when we came here mm-hmm. and you know, had four children but people would literally stop to touch her to stop her to touch her clothing mm-hmm. like invade her space invade who she was mm-hmm. so that they could feel this clothing of hers and that's that's when she decided to um, adopt Western clothing, survival. Mm-hmm. Mm. Survival. Yeah. Huh. Wellness and survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a tough place to be sometimes. Often. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Sometimes. I think sometimes, especially when you become conscious of it. Yeah. 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 Oh, lots, lots of stuff there. I should. Um, I. I don't know how to say thank you, except perhaps just to say that we really appreciate, you know, the time you've taken and the cost, what this costs you to speak, speak in this way about who you are and, um, you know, what's brought you to this point. And I feel like it's just the beginning of something bigger. Yeah. Well, I thank you for having me on. I really, I really appreciate the opportunity to tell my story. And I really appreciate you wanting to have this conversation with me. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm grateful for it. Yeah. So are we. Mm-hmm. Um, we wish you well. And um, we hope to chat with you again. Oh, I hope so. It would be great. Anytime. I'd be happy to come. I won't be so nervous next time. <laughs> oh, you did really yeah. well. I, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Bend the Podcast is a production of Bend Wellness. For more information, check out our website, bendwellness.org. Thanks for listening.